Well, I invite you to open your Bibles uh, with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. And we're moving into the last major section on suffering and persecution that Peter writes about in his first letter. And in many ways, what he's going to do is to provide medicine for suffering saints. So we're going to, uh, to read 1 Peter chapter 4. And this last section on suffering goes from verse 12 to verse 19. And, uh, but we're going to cut it off at verse 14 and just deal with that this morning. And then Lord willing, uh, look at the rest next week or next whenever. So verse 12, 1 Peter chapter 4, starting in verse 12, the Apostle Peter, guided, inspired by the Spirit of God, writes these words for our edification and our blessing. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of His glory, you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. And may God bless the reading of His Word. Well, again, as you've uh, observed as we've worked through 1 Peter, suffering is one of the major themes that he addresses in this letter. He includes not only the suffering that comes from persecution, but also in chapter 1, verse 6, he says you're distressed by various trials. So not only persecution suffering, but just all kinds of trials and afflictions and difficulties that we have in life. In this section, Peter appears to primarily focus on persecution for the name of Christ. Suffering for Christ. The application today is a bit challenging because we don't have much persecution for Christ uh, today. There's some. But it's basically pretty minor. But when we talk about suffering for Christ, I think we also have to appreciate that that suffering really expands beyond just persecution. Because in general, all of our trials and afflictions and sufferings are because we live in a sin-cursed world. And this world is in rebellion against Christ. And because of that, we will suffer various ways because of that opposition to the Lord Jesus. We'll experience pain and brokenness and disease and disasters. Pray for the families that lost so many people from the tornadoes just recently. Economic distress, national upheaval. And all of this is really kind of connected to this sin-cursed world that we live in. This Christ-hating world that dominates our society. In addition to that, 
there's an aspect of satanic opposition that can affect us in many different ways and many different forms as well. Peter will say later on in chapter 5 that our adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And when Satan comes and afflicts the children of God, he can bring bodily afflictions. He can bring mental distress. He can bring spiritual trials of of different levels. But all of this is because of his hatred for Christ. So even in that regard, when Satan is coming and Satan is buffeting us and tempting us, it comes as a measure of suffering for Christ because Satan is opposed to the Lord Jesus in every way. So, though I think Peter primarily has persecution in mind because his readers were experiencing that to some level, I think the application, broadly speaking, can be for many different types of suffering and afflictions that we endure in this sin-cursed world. So the application, I think, is broader than just specifically persecution directly for the name of Christ. So I think that's Peter's obvious, his main focus. What you see in this passage is the heart of the Apostle Peter. He has great compassion and desire to build up the faith of his readers to encourage them to be faithful when they're suffering, when they're being afflicted. And he's trying to encourage them and build their faith to stand firm and faithful in the hour of suffering. He's kind of like a a medic on the battlefield running from one wounded saint to another. Just like on a battlefield, a a medic is out there and he's he's running over to help this person because they've been shot in the shoulder and another one's been shot in the gut. And he's just moving from from injured soldier to injured soldier, trying to minister healing and grace and support for them during that time of affliction. Peter's kind of like this. I think he, he is ministering to saints who are wounded on the battlefield. They've been afflicted by Satan or by the unbelievers around them or various trials and, and they're wounded and they're hurting and they're suffering. And he comes with certain truths to bolster their faith and encourage them in their time of suffering. So let's look at the things that he's saying to these suffering saints to encourage their, their heart. And the first thing he emphasizes, we see in verse 12. He says, Beloved. So notice the affection of his heart for them. He calls him beloved. Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. Now notice he refers to, and this is from the New American Standard, A fiery ordeal. They were experiencing what he describes as a fiery or burning ordeal. Uh, What that generally refers to is something of an, an intense degree of some painful experience like you're being burned with fire, although that's not literally probably what he has in mind. I doubt at this point in time these believers were being burned alive like Nero is going to do in a little bit later, a few years later, 
He will be burning Christians alive in his gardens to give light at night. That's probably not happening yet. But nevertheless, it's some intense degree of suffering. Could be mental, emotional, physical of some, uh, to some degree. In verse 14, he will re- reference that they're being reviled. So that's verbal attacks against their faith, against their witness. So probably that is, is more in line. And notice what he says in verse 12. He says, don't be surprised at it. As if some strange thing were happening to you. Don't be shocked. Don't be surprised if you are persecuted for your faith or that you go through a lot of very difficult trials in your faith. Don't be shocked. Don't be surprised. Our tendency, I think, is when we same things seem to be going well and then suddenly something really bad happens in our life is to be surprised. And we began to question God. Lord, why are they doing this to me? Why are they persecuting me? Why are these things happening in my life? Do you, do you not love me anymore? Are you not with me anymore? And Peter is trying to comfort them by saying, look, don't, don't be surprised. This is not something strange. This is something to be expected. It's not strange that we suffer. And these Gentile believers, it was a mixed church, probably more Gentiles than Jewish believers, but they had never really known religious persecution before because they were all a part of the pagan religions of their day. They were all comfortable with that. And now they're experiencing some pushback from the culture. And Peter is saying, look, don't be shocked. This is not strange. Yeah, you're cultural outsiders now where before you were cultural insiders. You're facing religious and social prejudice and hostility. But as Jesus reminded His disciples, don't be shocked. This is to be expected. They hated Me, they're going to hate you, Jesus said. Jesus told His disciples in John 16, in the world you have tribulation. But take courage, I've overcome the world. So we shouldn't be surprised. No soldier on the front line in a battle in a war should be surprised when he's shot at by the enemy. It just comes with the territory of where we're at, where we're living in light of our commitment to Christ. So don't be shocked that you're getting shot at. Don't be shocked that someone's trying to run up to you and bayonet you and kill you or if verbal bombs are coming your way or trials are afflicting you. Don't be shocked. Don't be surprised. Spurgeon said, an evil world cannot speak well of holy lives. The sweetest fruit is the most pecked at by the birds. The most heaven-nearing mountain is the most beaten by the storms. And the loveliest character is the most assailed. And I think he makes a good point. The more we live out a life like Jesus Christ, the more we expose the folly of the world. The light of Christ within us reveals their darkness. 
The saltiness of Christ within us stings their eyes. So we should not be surprised that there's opposition to us from the world. So notice what he goes on to say in verse 12 is that you're going through fiery ordeals. Don't be surprised. It's not something strange. But you need to understand God's purpose for you in this. And he says in verse 12 of these fiery ordeals that they come upon you for your testing. They come upon you for your testing. The testing here refers to learning, testing something to learn the nature or character of it. And this testing is coming upon them because it's sent by God. God is sovereign. God has ordained them all. And He has sent these afflictions, this fiery ordeal, and it's coming upon you for your testing. God providence rules over all things. So understand, God sends it to test you. This is a test. Obviously, it's not so God can find out what's in your heart. God already knows. He's ordained it. He's sovereign. He controls our sanctification. So it's not for God to learn whether we're faithful or not because He's omniscient. And again, He's ordained all things. It's more a testing so that we can learn about ourselves. So we can see how weak we are or how much grace we have or how much more grace we need. It's a testing more to show us the condition of our hearts. How do you respond in times of testing and affliction? Times of abuse or persecution? Times of illness? How do you respond? It's a test. These fiery ordeals are sent by God. These sufferings become a way that God tests us to reveal whether we're trusting God or not. If our faith is strong or weak, are we just full of fear and anxiety and overwhelmed by the circumstances? Or do we find our contentment in Him? Do we find that His grace is sufficient for being tested? It's to reveal that to us so that when there is deficit spiritual grace, we seek more of it from the Lord. We draw closer to the Lord. So it's a test. In the book of Proverbs, we read that the refining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests hearts. So the tests, the trials that are sent into your life become like the fire under the cauldron. They become like the the refining pot, the furnace that melts down your life like it's some precious metal so that the dross can rise and be removed and you end up purer than you were before. That is God's goal in testing us with fiery trials and ordeals. It's to ultimately bring the afflictions, bring the persecution that causes our Hearts to realize that there is dross there. There is unbelief. There is a lack of faith. I do need more trust. And it can rise to the surface and we can repent of it and ask the Lord for more grace. 
It's all to purify us. So the fiery ordeal is not to destroy you. God sends it to test you, to purify you. And that's the first thing Peter wants his readers to understand. The sufferings are there for a godly, sanctifying purpose. They're going to test you to purify you. That's God's design. So like with Abraham, if we pass a test in offering up Isaac, God blesses his faith. If we fail the test and our faith is shaken and it falls into disgrace, then God humbles us and leads us in repentance so that we can grow closer to Him. It's a test. But it's a test designed to sanctify and purify us. And that works whether we fail the test or whether we pass the test by His grace. I think what Peter is saying here in verse 12 is to fail to understand the purpose of your fiery ordeal, your trials, your persecution, your afflictions, will only lead to discouragement and faint-heartedness. If you don't realize that God has a purpose for it, then you say, what is the purpose? There is no purpose. And you become discouraged and downhearted. We become more depressed. But to know that God has a purpose that He sends it for my testing to ultimately purify my faith, then that can encourage me to persevere in faithfulness in the midst of it. And I think that's the first point. The first bottle of medicine that He hands to these wounded soldiers on the, on the battlefield, these wounded saints, to encourage them to give them hope and grace in the midst of it. The second thing He says, is found in verse 13. He says, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. So now he wants us <clears throat> to rejoice when we are suffering. This is actually uh, in the present tense. It's a command. So he says, when you're going through your fiery ordeal, when you're going through your affliction, your suffering, your persecution, Rejoice and keep on rejoicing. Make a permanent habit of, of, of being joyful. Now, how in the world do you do that? I mean, it's, that, that's a big problem because so oftentimes our fiery ordeals, our persecution, whatever it may be, really discourages us. It takes away our joy. We become grumpy and, and gloomy depressed. But Peter says, no, rejoice. Now notice in, in verse 13, he says, to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, there will be varying degrees of the saints in suffering for the Lord. Some will suffer a lot. In other countries, our brethren are suffering a lot for Christ. Not so much in America, but even here in this country, our degree of suffering will vary. And a lot of times we have a tendency to look at our life and our circumstances and think that we're, we're suffering a lot more than everybody else. And yet, it will be proportionate according to God's sovereign will and plan for our life. But to whatever degree you share the sufferings of Christ, Peter says, keep on rejoicing. Now, what's going to give us joy? 
when we're suffering? Well, I think part of the insight here is in verse 13 in the word share. To the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ. That's the same word that's linked to another similar word, koinonia, which means fellowship. And what Peter is saying is that to the degree that you have fellowship with the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. And that's one of the sources of our joy. I'm having a fellowship in this suffering with my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And that's something that can actually build in joy. This is something that uh, I think is the first point, the first reason for rejoicing is that there is a fellowship with Christ that believers have when we suffer, when we are suffering for Christ in any way. This is, uh, I think, the, the joy that the apostles had in Acts 5.41. Remember, they had been arrested and they had been flogged. I mean, their backs were brutally beaten. They were flogged for preaching the Gospel. But in Acts chapter 5, verse 41, it says that they went on their way from the presence of the council rejoicing. They're rejoicing. Now, why in the world they've just been... Their backs are probably beaten black and blue maybe bleeding from the flogging, and they're rejoicing. Why are they rejoicing? Well, that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for His name. That there is a fellowship. There's actually a joy that when I'm being persecuted or going through trials and difficulties for Christ, that I am sharing with the Lord in His sufferings. Not in any way that our sufferings a tribute to the atonement or the, you know, or, or contribute in any way to our salvation. No, Christ's sufferings are complete and totally sufficient for our salvation. But by way of imitation, we share. We, there's a fellowship with Christ in that suffering. Not only do we draw closer to Christ in our suffering, that's fellowship. But we also realize that we are to some degree imitating our Lord. That as He suffered, so He calls upon us to suffer. And we're gradually being molded more into the image of Christ. It has nothing to do with salvation. But it has to do with fellowship and imitation and being joined with the Lord. They were rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for His name. Now think about that. How would we milk the joy when we are persecuted or when we are suffering in any way, living in a sin-cursed world, various afflictions, is that when we identify ourselves with Christ and look at His sufferings and realize that He is ordained that I be conformed more to His image. And the way to do that is that I must suffer too. That's the way that I'm sharing with Him in His suffering. That's why Paul said in Philippians 3.10, the passion of his heart was to know Him, Christ, and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death. That brought Paul great joy. The fellowship of His sufferings. 
when you realize it, that my Savior had to suffer to save me, so we are called upon to suffer in, a, in ways that show that we are being conformed to His image. Again, not for salvation, but for the fellowship of being made more like Christ, being conformed to His image in that particular way. Remember what Jesus told His disciples? Peter would have heard this and remembered it. Jesus says, if you want to be My disciples, what must you do? Deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Him. To be a disciple of Christ, we must take up our cross. There's a sense in which we share, we have fellowship with the sufferings of our Lord. His sufferings brought about our salvation. Our sufferings just mold us more into His image. But there's a joy that we can actually unbelievably experience when you think about that through what I'm suffering, I'm being made more like my Savior. And that should bring joy in the midst of the suffering. I think that's what Peter is emphasizing here. And there's another reason for rejoicing. Is not only do we experience at some level of fellowship, a, a union with Christ in His sufferings, but there's also a fellowship with the Holy Spirit. Look down at verse 14. Peter says, if you're reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed. Now why are you blessed? We ought to be joyful over our blessings, right? Why are you blessed? He says in verse 14, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. So that really the reason for rejoicing now is not only because we're growing in fellowship with Christ, being made more like Christ, but we also have a fellowship with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is upon you, he says in verse 14. The Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Now how will that give you joy? I think the connection is that if you are reviled for the name of Christ, and this implies that they are, it's a conditional sentence in Greece, in Greek that's making a statement, they are being reviled for the name of Christ. They are blessed. And why are they blessed? And why should they have joy in that blessing? Because it is evidence that the Spirit of glory and of God is on you to such a degree that you are manifesting Christ to a Christ-hating world, that there is evidence of the Spirit of God is on you who is, who is giving you a godly witness before unbelievers and their persecution, their reviling of you, their mocking of you, their afflictions upon you should give you joy because I can't do that on my own, but that's evidence that the Spirit of God has given me a godly witness to make that they are responding against. That's the work of the Spirit of God. My flesh isn't going to live out my faith in such a way that others will see it out in public. But when the Spirit of God is upon our life, then other people see that we are followers of Christ. 
And when they respond negatively, we can have joy in their reviling and their persecution because that is evidence that the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon us. And I can be joyful in that. Thank You, Lord, for the persecution because they're responding not just to me, but to the witness of the Holy Spirit in my life that I follow Christ, I love Christ. They're reacting against that, but that's for Your glory. That's a, that's a work of the Spirit of God in my heart and life. So Lord, I thank You for that testimony to me that the Spirit is in my life giving me that kind of a witness before the world. And that's something to rejoice in. Something to realize that we're blessed when we're reviled for the name of Christ. And again, in light of the fact that these sufferings and view can be broader than just persecution, I think it is evidence that the Spirit of glory and of God is there when we maintain our faith and trust in God in the midst of whatever trials we're going through. That is testimony that the Spirit of God is in my heart, that I don't apostatize, I don't leave the faith, I say I'm just giving up on Christianity because I'm still walking with the Lord, I'm still looking to the Lord. And that's evidence of the Spirit in your life. And that should be something that should give you joy. Because that is an indication that you belong to the Lord. Because your faith is still intact. may struggle. may have its ups and downs. But the Lord is preserving you. That's the work of His Spirit. And that should give us joy in the midst of that. Again, I think this is one of the great examples in the Bible, of course, is Stephen, when uh, he had extreme negative reaction against his witness before the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 7, says when the Sanhedrin heard his testimony, they were cut to the quick and they began gnashing their teeth at him and being full of the Holy Spirit. So he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of God standing at the right hand of God. And they, the Sanhedrin, cried out with a loud voice. They covered their ears and they rushed upon him with one impulse and they grabbed hold of him and dragged him out of the city and they stoned him to death. And why did they react that way? Because he was full of the Spirit of God that gave him the power, the boldness, and the grace to make that testimony before them. And, and it, was, it was their reaction against the presence, the power, the glory of the Spirit of God upon and in his life. And I think that's what Peter is referring to. That when you see that your faith is persevering, even in times of trial and affliction, give glory to God. Because that's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And that's something to be joyful about. Because that faith is something that is being preserved by God's faithfulness to us. And we can give Him praise for that now while we're suffering. Because we have fellowship with Christ and fellowship with the Holy Spirit so that we can even rejoice now when we share the sufferings of Christ. But then he adds one final comment in verse 13. 
there is future rejoicing that lies ahead of us that should give us joy today. The end of verse 13, again, Peter says, to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of His glory, you may rejoice with exultation. So, Peter wants us to rejoice now when we're going through sufferings and trials and difficulties because of our fellowship with Christ and our fellowship with the Holy Spirit. But he says, so that at the revelation of His glory, that would be the second coming of Christ, you may rejoice with exultation that you might enter into a greater joy than what you can even experience now. There is a, an exultant joy waiting for you in heaven when Christ comes back. So let that encourage you now to rejoice in your sufferings, your trials, your afflictions, because God has something even far greater waiting for you in the future. The faith that can rejoice now in times of suffering for Christ will experience the first fruits of a great harvest of rejoicing that will occur when Christ returns. The joy that we have now when we see the Spirit of God faithfully persevering in us, maintaining our faith now, giving us grace to look to Him now, the joy that we can have in the evidence of the Spirit is just like an appetizer. It's like the hors d'oeuvres of a, of a banquet feast of joy that we're going to have in the future. And Peter is saying, capture that. Look forward and capture that future joy. The joy that you're going to have in the future that words cannot begin to express because you belong to Christ by faith in Him. And let that great bumper crop of joy Increase your joy even now. This present joy is something that I think we struggle with attaining to. Christ and, or excuse me, Paul in Romans chapter 8 said that the creation now is groaning and the creation is suffering the pains of childbirth until now. And it's awaiting the coming of the glory of God's children. When we'll be glorified, then creation will be glorified. But he goes on to say, we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, redemption of our body. We do groan. We're groaning now because we live in a, a sin-cursed, Christ-hating world. And it brings all kinds of troubles into our life. So we are groaning in a certain sense. But Peter says, yeah, there's an element of groaning, but you should have an element of joy. Because what Christ is doing in your life now through ordaining these testings and trials, you will be rewarded in heaven forever and ever with stuff that you can't begin to comprehend. That's why Jesus said to His disciples in Matthew 5, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven 
His groom. Whatever suffering you go through, whatever trials and afflictions that Satan brings your way out of his hatred for Christ, whatever is involved in, in living a faithful Christian life, whatever afflictions, Christ will reward us in heaven. And He says we should rejoice now in our afflictions, our sufferings, because our reward will be great. Another time when Jesus taught this same truth in Luke records in Luke chapter 6, and in that occasion, Jesus said, be glad in that day and leap for joy. Leap for joy. Now, knowing the joy that God has waiting for us in the future. Again, I think to, to live in joy is a, is a battle. It's a battle for me. It's a battle for a lot of us. But what Peter is saying is that we will one day have a joy that is full of exultation in verse 13. When Christ comes back in His glory, you will rejoice with exultation. That is an exuberant joy, an unspeakable joy, the kind of joy that's running over the top. It's overflowing the banks of the heart. It's bubbling over. And a lot of our joy now is like a can of Coke that you popped the lid about six months ago and set it, set it on your counter. And what's happened to the fizz on the inside of it? It's gone. It's just flat. It's lifeless. It just sits there. And a lot of times our joy is like that. It's like a dead Coke. No fizz. No bubbling. Nothing coming up. It's just flat. And what Peter is saying is to get more of the fizz back in our joy is look at what Christ has accomplished for your future. And look at that incredible blessing that you have waiting for you in heaven. That's why the psalmist says that in your presence is fullness of joy and in your right hand there are pleasures forever. And we're to anticipate that exultant future joy and that can actually help to revive our joy now. There's just too many things in this world that brings that future joy and glory in eclipse. Like a lunar eclipse where the, where the moon <clears throat> moves in front of the path of the sun and the sun goes dark. And the world does that to us. It continually brings in objects into our life. It's the, it's the busyness of life. I'm just, I got so much to do. It's all the trials. I got all these other issues in my life. And it's like a moon that just moves in front of the glory that waits us in heaven. And suddenly it casts a shadow. And we don't see the light of that future day. And when we go spiritually into eclipse, then we lose our joy. And in effect, we enter into that sad condition of being children of light who are walking in darkness. Because we've lost the glory of that future blessedness and joy that Jesus has for us. What Peter is saying is don't forget it. Because that future joy will ignite your present joy. It will move away the shadow 
and let you see the light of the glory of what Christ has accomplished for us on the cross when He, when he died and bore our sins and suffered the full wrath of God that any sinner that repents and puts their faith in Jesus Christ can be forgiven of all their sins and have the hope of glory. And Peter is saying, don't forget that exultant joy when Christ comes back. They'll help you with your present joy even today. And notice when he says here in verse 13 that this exultant joy will occur at the revelation of His glory. We're told in 1 Peter, Peter's already told his readers this, that when Christ comes back and we're ushered into this incredible inheritance, that's going to be amazing. But remember all the way back in chapter 1, he described to them the blessings of Christ that they would obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. What are they rejoicing in? They're going through trials now just like you are and I am. They're going through trials. But they have a great joy even now because they have their eyes focused on the glory of what Jesus Christ is and has done for us, but what He has waiting for us. This incredible inheritance. And we must fight to keep that perspective. It's a key to joy now in the Christian life. So when Christ comes back, He will come in glory, verse 13. And that glory will be twofold. He will come as a judge and He will come to consummate the salvation for His chosen ones. He'll come as a judge in Revelation 19. He'll ride on a white horse. His eyes will be a flame of fire. On his head will be many diadems. He'll be clothed with a robe dipped in blood. His name is called the Word of God. The armies of the saints will come with him from heaven, riding on horses white and clean. And from Christ's mouth will come a sharp sword, and he will strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. And He will tread the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on His robe and on His thigh, He has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And if you're not a believer this morning, you will see Christ in that way. And He will come as a judge. And He will bring His wrath and judgment upon sinners who have rebelliously turned away from Christ and never humbled themselves or repented or put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ who alone can save them. And if you're in that condition, come to Christ. Believe in Him. He's your only hope to escape the coming of the wrath of God. The glory of Christ as a judge which will appear on that day. But Peter probably has more in mind the glory of Christ coming when He consummates salvation for His people. We read in Revelation 21, verse 3, 
that behold, the tabernacle of God is among men and He will dwell among them and they shall be His people and God Himself will be among them. In other words, we will live with God. God will be with us on the new earth forever and ever. And look what He says in verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eye. And you know what will not be in heaven? No Kleenex. You'll never need a Kleenex in heaven. He'll wipe away every tear from their eye. There will no longer be any death. So what else is not going to be in heaven? Undertakers, funeral homes, cemeteries. Won't find them anywhere. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. What else will be gone from heaven? No disease. No COVID. No cancer. No hospitals. No doctors. No nurses. Won't find them in heaven. Won't be there. Because there won't be anything to treat. In Revelation 22, John receiving this vision adds to it there will no longer be any curse because there's no longer any sin. And the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and the bondservants will serve Him and they will see His face. They will see His face and they will, and His name will be on their foreheads. But we will actually be there with the Lord Jesus and we will see His face. And that's a future vision of the glory that Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected has procured for all of His children. So that when Christ appears, His people will enter in to the fullness of joy. As Paul says, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which has not even entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love Him. Do you love the Lord Jesus for dying on the cross, saving you from your sins? Then you have an incredible inheritance waiting for you. Many years ago, the church, well, I say many years, we did it for many years. The church used to go to Colorado and the summer and climb 14ers. I haven't done that the last few years. <clears throat> Who knows, maybe we'll pull off another one some year. But we would uh, we'd drive to Colorado. We would, we would camp out. Dads, older sons who could have an attempt to, to summit. And we would camp out and we would go to the trailhead early in the morning. It's cold. We have hours ahead of us of uphill walking, climbing, scrambling, uh, sometimes slipping, falling, bruising your knee. I mean, it was going to be a long ordeal. Difficult, arduous. Have to go up 3,000 to 6 plus thousand feet of elevation gain. Oxygen gets thinner up there. So your, your legs are just burning. Your lungs are heaving. Your heart's beating wildly. There's a danger of getting off the path and then you get lost and there's a potential of dying. I mean, there's people who 
die every year trying to climb a mountain in, in Colorado. But the motivation to get up there was, was to think of how exciting it's going to be when you get to the summit and you get to see this incredible panoramic vision and you have the joy of finally arriving and all that uphill toil and struggle and pain and agony and suffering is finally over because you made it to the top. And there's a sense in which that captures some of the attitude of the Christian that we need to always keep that focus on the top. Being on the mountaintop. And now we're like in Pilgrim's Progress. We're, we're like Christian on the pathway to the promised land. And it's only by the grace of God that we get there. But if you can envision what it would be like in heaven, the vista that you will see, being able to gaze upon the very face of Jesus Christ is a motivation. It's a joy that whatever I'm suffering through now, Christ will more than reward us when we get to heaven in His presence. So in conclusion, the medic is on the field ministering to the wounded, suffering saints. And basically, he's reminding them, when you suffer, remember. Remember the purpose that God has for your suffering. Whether it's persecution or whatever. God is testing you not to destroy you, but to purify you. It's for your good. It's for your sanctification. Don't forget that. There's a good reason behind every aspect of suffering for believers. Secondly, keep rejoicing now because you are sharing in fellowship with Christ and fellowship with the Holy Spirit. And the very fact that the world is opposing you is evidence that the Spirit of God is upon you and you're having a, a witness that they hear and see and hate you for. And then also when you're suffering, remember that fullness of future joy that lies ahead. When anything that can take away joy will be removed, all joy killers will be gone. And we will have a fullness of joy forever and ever. And that's something to rejoice in. So may the Lord encourage you as you are, may experience a level of persecution for Christ or whether it's the affliction from Satan or the world or anything else. But I think these same principles can be a blessing to all of us. And may God work that grace in our hearts. Well, let's close in a word of prayer. Our Father, we thank You for giving Peter this heavenly perspective, this focus, Lord, on this incredible, exultant joy that You suffered on the cross, that You died and bled when You took away the full penalty of all of our sins. And then when you rose triumphant from the grave, and now, Lord, you are exalted in heaven, waiting for that day in the providence of the Father when you will come back down to this earth and fetch all of your children and bring them in that glorious heavenly joy and state of blessedness that you won for us when you died and saved us on the cross. 
So Father, now as we seek to live faithful lives for You, we know there will be a measure of opposition and persecution to whatever degree, whether it's satanic or from men or just from this sin-cursed world that brings so much affliction and suffering into our life. Lord, may we be encouraged. You do have a purpose. It is for our good. And we can have joy in it, both now and also in the future. And may that encourage our hearts to live faithful for You today. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.